Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Hey, I'm Steph, and this is Not Today. Friends, here we are, back at it again. How are we all doing? Is it an early morning? Are we on our way to work? Are we cleaning? Or are we cooking dinner? I don't know. I do wonder about that sometimes. I personally love listening to podcasts when I'm cooking. So, hey, if you are. (laughs) But also hello to all of you. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Steph. I am your host. And this is Not Today, where we talk about true survival stories. And oh man, do I have quite the story for you today. This is one of those stories that is truly just nightmare fuel. Because it's just senseless. I mean, it's one of those things where it could have happened to anyone, right? It was just wrong place, wrong time. Like, just the worst possible luck. And you're just dealing with someone made of pure evil. We're going to be talking about Jennifer Holiday today. And she is really a remarkable woman. She was put in what seemed like a hopeless situation, but in the very last moment, she was able to talk her way out of her impending death. I don't want to give too much away before we get into it, but her story is definitely heavy and not for the faint of heart. And I did want to give a quick trigger warning for sexual assault. But with all of that said, I guess let's just get into the story of the survival of Jennifer Holliday. Our story takes place in Lufkin, Texas, which is a small town outside of Houston, Texas. According to Niche.com, Lufkin has a population of about 34,000 people and offers residents a sparse suburban feel. 27-year-old Jennifer Holliday had a busy life. She was a single mother of a five-year-old little boy and an EMT with Gold Star Ambulance Service. She was a hard worker. Her shifts were 24 hours on and 48 hours off which sounds exhausting, but she loved being an EMT. Jennifer said she really enjoyed taking care of people. And when she wasn't working, she spent all of her time with her family. Jennifer was very close with her cousin, Anna Franklin. Anna had just turned 18 years old and was actually living with Jennifer at the time. On May 29th, 2005, just before 3 a.m., Jennifer had gotten a call from Anna asking if Jennifer could come pick her up. Anna had been doing a late-night babysitting job for one of Jennifer's friends. Anna had always looked up to Jennifer because she was like a cool older sister to her. The two had a great time together. Anna was very chatty and bright. She always knew how to have a good time, and Jennifer described her as bouncy. After picking her up, they decided to stop at a gas station since Anna wanted to grab some snacks, but more specifically, she wanted some Skittles. And who doesn't love a late-night candy run? Personally, my late-night gas station snack would probably be spicy sweet chili Doritos if I'm going salty, or for candy, maybe like a gummy, like gummy cherries. I think you can tell a lot about a person from their gas station snack, and I think Anna chose correctly, because I've never had a disappointing Skittle. 
But as Jennifer sat in the car and Anna headed into the store, they were completely unaware that a man who was fueling his rage with drugs and alcohol was headed right for them. That man was 31-year-old Eric Stephen Parnell. Earlier that evening, Eric Parnell, who had recently gone through a breakup from his girlfriend, was attempting to make contact with her, but was unable to do so. He continued to try to make contact with her, but was continually stopped by his ex-girlfriend's father over the phone, which over time only made him increasingly more aggressive and violent. With each failed attempt, Eric Parnell would become drunker and take more drugs, which only fueled his anger and aggression. After his repeated calls didn't work, he went out to a bar where he caused quite the disturbance. He had apparently gone up to a few women at that bar and made sexual advances toward them that were not received well, and because of that, he was thrown out of the bar. However, the police were not called, nor was a cab called, nor were his keys taken, but he was thrown out. So, he wasn't the bar's problem, but from there, he could just continue on, and that's exactly what he did. So, Eric Parnell continued drinking and driving until he made his way to the very same gas station that Jennifer and Anna had stopped at. As Anna was walking into the gas station, Eric Parnell happened to be walking out. He held the door for her on his way out, and on CCTV footage, you can see that he seemingly said something to her, but Anna, who was on the phone with her brother at the time, didn't seem to notice, or she just chose not to respond. After getting what she wanted and leaving the store, she jumped back into Jennifer's Ford Explorer, and the two got back onto the road. But this time, Eric Parnell pulled out behind them. What makes the story so terrifying is that this man was so deranged that this could have happened to anyone. If Jennifer and Anna had decided not to stop at that gas station, or if they had stopped just a few minutes later or a few minutes before, they wouldn't have crossed paths with Eric Parnell which would have spared them, but it seemed any woman who happened to cross Eric Parnell's path at that moment would have become his target. Jennifer and Anna just so happened to be the extremely unlucky ones that night. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. As they drove for a few miles, Eric drove very close to their car until he sped up alongside them on the highway, on the driver's side of Jennifer's car. While maintaining his speed to stay with Jennifer's car, which was about 70 miles per hour, and without any kind of warning, he rolled down his window, pulled out a shotgun, stuck it out his window, and shot into Jennifer's side of the car. Immediately, the girls heard this extremely loud bang of the gunshot, and the driver's side window shattered. The shot didn't just shatter the window, it had also hit Jennifer, and she was very badly injured. 
Eric had shot her in the arm, and it had nearly severed her arm from the elbow down. But at that moment, all she really knew was that there was blood and glass everywhere. So much blood that she couldn't see through the windshield to drive. And there was glass that had gotten in her eyes as well. Jennifer's first thought was that a drunk driver had hit her, because she hadn't seen Eric Parnell come up alongside her car and pull out the shotgun. So she immediately told Anna to call 911, and she pulled her car over to the side of the road. At that moment, 911 operator Stephanie Davidson received a call from Anna, who was screaming into the phone that someone had just shot at them, because Anna had seen what had actually happened. Meanwhile, Jennifer was trying to process what had just happened. Everything had happened so fast that she still didn't understand what was going on fully. All she could hear was Anna shrieking into the phone. She knew she was bleeding, but she was still very disoriented, so she was trying to tell her it was okay, she was just hit by a drunk driver. Eric Parnell had also pulled his car over, right behind Jennifer's car. And as Anna screamed into the phone that they had been shot at, she began screaming that he was coming back toward them. She was telling Jennifer to go, go, but Jennifer didn't understand. Stephanie Davidson was trying to get Anna to calm down as best as she could so she could get some kind of location out of her. Since she was calling on a cell phone, she needed to be told a location, since it would have been much harder to track down the location of the call without one. But before she got a chance to do that, Eric had walked up to the driver's side window and, while laughing, said, Hello, girls, before he reached inside the shattered driver's side window and grabbed the cell phone out of Anna's hand and disconnected the call and threw the phone into the grass on the side of the highway. He then lifted the shotgun and pointed it back into the car over Jennifer's lap and directly at Anna, screaming once again, Anna turned her head so she was facing away from the gun before Eric pulled the trigger and shot Anna in the side of the head, killing her instantly. This man is pure evil. He didn't hesitate taking the life of this young girl, and afterward, he continued his reign of terror, again, with no hesitation. It absolutely breaks my heart to think of the fear that Anna must have been feeling in those moments leading up to that, because... She saw everything that happened, and she understood what was going on. And it also breaks my heart for Jennifer because she didn't understand, and this is what happened, and obviously it's not her fault, but it just, this whole sequence of events is just so unbelievably heartbreaking. I mean, I can't say it enough, this man is just evil. There was nothing Jennifer could do. She was in shock as Eric pulled her out of the car and began dragging her toward his truck. Because at that point, she now understands what is going on. She didn't want to believe that he had just taken the life of her cousin, but it happened in front of her, and she couldn't really rationalize it away. She, it happened directly next to her, so to say that she was in a state of shock is an understatement. Jennifer tried to resist, but Eric was very enraged, he was extremely drunk, and was on a lot of drugs, so he was extremely powerful at this point and he managed to throw Jennifer into his truck, and once he got her in the passenger seat, he decided to go back to her car. Jennifer believes he was either trying to move Anna's body from the car or take it with them, 
And as Eric did that, she looked around his car and saw in the back seat on the ground was the shotgun that he had been using. So with what little strength she had left, she reached over with her right hand into the back, grabbed the gun, and threw it out of her passenger side window. And this was incredibly difficult for her to do, because remember, all of this began with Jennifer being shot in the arm at close range with a shotgun. Her left arm had almost been severed below the elbow at that point. She was losing a lot of blood. Jennifer had believed that the shotgun was the only weapon this man had with him. That was until she saw that he had multiple other guns on the floor of the truck. But at that point, it was too late. After failing to move Anna, Eric decided to leave her body where it was in the car before he walked back to the truck, got in, and sped off with Jennifer in the passenger seat. At the same time, 911 dispatcher Stephanie Davidson was desperately trying to call back Anna's cell phone, but of course, with no luck. She knew there was something very wrong. This was the first time in her career that she had to deal with someone who she felt was in distress for their life. The system they were working with at that time could only give them a five-mile radius of where the call had come from. It didn't give an exact location, but at least that was something. So with that information, Stephanie knew the call had come from the 69 North area, which is an area that went north of their city. It's a large county, but that was one specific area that she could dispatch police to as a starting point and go from there. By that time, it was around 4 a.m. Eric Parnell was doing 90 miles per hour down the highway with Jennifer in the passenger seat. The whole time, he was filled with horrible rage and was, in Jennifer's words, acting crazy. He screamed at her and punched her as they sped down the road, telling her that what happened was her fault. All at the same time, he was drinking and taking drugs. It was a terrifying and extremely dangerous combination. Jennifer had no reason to believe that he was going to let her go. She felt like she was on the way to her death. But she wasn't going to go down without a fight. But she was losing a lot of blood, fast, and she had very limited options. As they sped down the road, she grabbed onto the steering wheel with her right arm as hard as she could and screamed at him to pull over. He fought with her, telling her to let go of the wheel before again punching her in the face, which caused her to let go. But then she hit him in the face, which, again, didn't end well for her. He grabbed her hair and slammed her head into the dash. And even worse than that, he had a small ice pick, which he used to stab her in the leg several times with, all while erratically driving down the road. Meanwhile, Andy Robertson lieutenant with the Angelina County Sheriff's Office, had gotten the call that a vehicle had been shot at in the north part of the county. Officers had been advised that there were two female callers in the vehicle. At around 4.11 a.m., police arrived at Jennifer's abandoned vehicle and found a horrific scene. Outside of the car, Lieutenant Robertson had seen two spent shotgun shells, as well as the busted driver's side window, and as he approached, he saw the body of a female victim in the passenger seat. They also found the shotgun in the ditch, and knew that two women were supposedly in the vehicle, which meant that whoever had done this still had one of them. 
Police immediately began searching the surrounding area, within a few hundred yards of the vehicle, but with nothing to go off of, they had no idea who the suspect was. If they had any connection to the women in the vehicle, or if it was just a random shooting, police had no answers, and by that time, Jennifer was long gone. Back in Eric's truck, she was starting to realize just how badly she had been wounded. It was an open fracture. All of her forearm bone was gone. At that time, she had stopped physically fighting her attacker and had begun trying to tie off her wound with a t-shirt. She had no idea what else this man was capable of and had no control over the situation. She was terrified, and that fear was only heightened when her attacker pulled off of the main highway and onto a quiet back road 20 miles from the nearest town. Jennifer thought to herself, should I try to grab this gun and use it? She felt like she was going to die regardless, so she really thought about whether or not she should just go for it. But since she was still losing a lot of blood, she decided not to grab the gun. Throughout this attack, her attacker would go through such a range of emotion. He would hit her in a rage and scream at the top of his lungs, and then he would start laughing profusely. She was terrified, but she was also confused. Jennifer wondered if it was possible that she knew this man from somewhere, if maybe she had done something to him at any point to warrant this type of behavior from him, if maybe he had mistaken the girls for someone else. She just couldn't understand why he was so mad and where this was all coming from and, and why her and why Anna. And she just kept asking herself all these questions because it was so violent and so aggressive and, and so confusing. Which again is just what makes this so scary is that he didn't have any connection to these girls. They were just women. He was just an evil man who hated women. And isn't that just how it goes sometimes. It's just scary running into a mentally unstable man who has a hatred of women. And unfortunately for them, that's who they ran into in, in the worst, most extreme way. And even though it wasn't personally connected to them, it was coming from somewhere. He spent his whole evening trying to get a hold of his girlfriend, who we'll talk about later, but he was physically abusive too, and he had attacked his girlfriend in the past, and he was supposed to be arrested because of it. Like, we'll talk about that later, but he's already violent toward women, and he couldn't get a hold of his girlfriend, and now he's angry and is taking it out on them, which is insane and awful. I, it was, like, truly the definition of wrong place, wrong time. It was a nightmare. Jennifer hoped that another car would drive by or there would be a nearby house and someone would hear her scream, but it was so dark out there, it did not look like anyone was anywhere near there, and she did not have much hope that she was going to live. Eric dragged her out of his car and down to this little embankment by the truck where he sexually assaulted her. By that time, Jennifer had been through so much and was in so much shock that her mind had basically turned the pain off at that point. But what happened next, Jennifer completely did not expect. After attacking her, Eric had started crying, followed by more angry screaming, but then he stood up and as nice and sincerely as possible, he asked Jennifer, what happened to your arm? 
It was as if he had transformed into a completely different person for a moment. Jennifer looked up at him, perplexed, because just moments before, this man was extremely brutal, violent, and sadistic, but now he seemed genuinely concerned about Jennifer. She was dealing with a totally new person. And again, he asked her, what happened? That sudden shift of character was then followed by another sudden shift back to anger. Jennifer tried to calm him down by talking to him about her six-year-old son. She asked if he had kids. And this seemed to work because again, he seemed to shift. And he asked her, what happened to your arm? Jennifer quickly realized that this memory lapse could be her last chance at survival. So she immediately used it to gain control of the situation. Growing up, Jennifer had to deal with a lot of people in her life struggling with addiction. And because of that, she said she was used to scenarios that maybe didn't make sense in the moment, but she was able to roll with the punches to get out of a situation or stay safe. According to Anna Franklin's mother, Robin Franklin, Jennifer and her siblings had a very rocky childhood when it came to people with addiction. She didn't name a specific person. However, she did say the kids were, quote, always needing to run and hide. She had to think quick, meaning Jennifer. So to me, that sounds like one of their parents may have had a pretty severe addiction issue that was maybe dangerous to the children. So because of her upbringing, Jennifer was able to think on her feet in this surreal moment. She just kept talking, so he didn't have enough time to switch back to his angry self, but also she made him the hero, which was an incredibly smart thing to do. When Eric asked her what happened, she told him, you said you were going to help me. You were going to take me back to your house, remember? And for a moment, he looked at her as if she was going crazy, but she just kept going. She told him, yeah, thank you so much. You didn't see that man, John, that shot me on the side of the road. He was going to leave me out there on the side of the highway, but thank God you came along and saved me. You told me you'd take me back to your house so I can use your phone to call for help. Despite the shock and horrifying things he had just done to her, she had him help her up and put her back into his truck. She even began rubbing his leg and kissing him and acted as if she enjoyed what just happened to her. And she thanked him for saving her, which he seemed to respond well to. In a few sources, I even saw Jennifer apparently started talking to him about how she loved him and how they would get married someday. She was really laying it on thick. She wanted him to stay in this mind frame and she was going to say whatever she had to to keep him there. And it didn't take long before he started to believe Jennifer and actually agreed with her. She asked if she could use his phone because she was losing a lot of blood. And he said something along the lines of, I know, you're bleeding everywhere. She continually told him that he was going to take her back to his house so she could use his phone over and over. She didn't want to give him a chance to think. She thanked him for being her savior and it was working it appeared her attacker's rage had somehow just vanished. This is so impressive to me that she was able to think that quickly on her feet in such a terrifying situation that she was able to identify that he had made such a stark shift that she was able to convince him that not only did she 
like, enjoy what had just happened to her, but that he actually didn't shoot her, but that he was her savior and he was going to take her to his home to call for help. Like, oh my God, that is so smart. That takes a very special person, I think. I don't think everyone would have been able to think of that on the spot like that. But that's what she said, it was, was that her childhood had prepared her for, for this exact moment, I guess. Like, she was so used to having nonsense conversations and she was used to talking to people who were just so high and drunk and getting what she needed out of them for her own safety, that this was just another one of those situations. And it saved her life. And it's, it's incredible, really. But as much as she had experience dealing with situations like this, she also knew that this new personality may not last. She was scared to death that he was going to remember what he had done. She was hoping when she got to his house, if she couldn't use the phone, then there would be someone around in the area who could help. He had told her at one point that he lived with his brother and his family was in the area, but as they got closer, he told her that his family was actually out of town. And Jennifer did get him to take her back to his house, although there wasn't anyone around. When they pulled up, Jennifer saw that he lived next to a cemetery, and the nearest town was actually 20 miles away, so they were still in the middle of nowhere, but at least she was closer to a phone. By that time, it was around 4.25 in the morning. As she walked inside, Jennifer was feeling very woozy from the amount of blood that she had lost, but through it all, she was the one comforting her attacker. She almost had to talk to him as if he were a child, consoling him and telling him that everything was going to be alright. Finally, he gave her the phone and sat down on the couch next to her as she dialed 911. This must have been an extremely scary moment because she needed to get across to the dispatcher how dire her situation was, but also she couldn't set him off again because if she did, he would easily kill her as well. When the dispatcher answered the phone, she said calmly, My name is Jennifer Holliday and I've been shot. The dispatcher who answered the phone was Stephanie Davidson. And after hearing that, she called to someone I've got another gunshot wound. And Jennifer responded to her, same one, same one, same one. Stephanie responded, you're the... And Jennifer just said, uh-huh. And that's how they figured out that she was related to the car that had been found earlier, which is great because Jennifer barely had to say anything. It didn't put her in a more dangerous situation than she was already in. Stephanie asked, is there anybody there with you? And Jennifer said, yes, the guy who saved me. And Stephanie said, saved you? And Jennifer said, yes, the good Samaritan that saved me. She said, you know, this man is a hero. He pulled over after I was shot and he saved me, but I'm losing a lot of blood. So Stephanie asked, do you know where you are? And Jennifer said, no, she didn't. She knew it was a mobile home, but she didn't know how to get there. So Stephanie said, okay, well, can I talk to the man with you? And Jennifer said, sure. And this was kind of a gamble. But then again, the whole thing was a gamble. So as long as she could keep up the act that he was the hero, she was hoping for the best. And she handed it over to Eric and said, here, baby. 
Eric took the phone and actually gave his address, and not only his address, but gave a detailed description for how to get to his house, but then told Jennifer and Stephanie that he didn't want the police there because he had about five or six warrants out for his arrest. At that time, he had been wanted for a drunk driving charge as well as a few family violence charges that he had failed to appear in court for. They were, of course, going to call the police, but Stephanie just said that they weren't. That's when Stephanie Davidson called Lieutenant Andy Robertson and told him she believed she had the second victim they had been looking for all night on the phone and gave him the location. He immediately gathered deputies to go to the area, but as they got closer to the address they were given, he started to piece together who they may be dealing with. Two months prior, officers had responded to a family violence call where a female victim had been assaulted, and when they got to the house that night, they ended up having a standoff with Eric Parnell, who was armed at the time, and the police had a two-hour standoff with him to get him out of the house. And that was for the family violence call, not this night with Jennifer. But in the meantime, Jennifer just had to sit and wait for the police to arrive. It took around 25 minutes to get there from Lufkin, but thankfully she had Stephanie Davidson still on the phone to try to keep things de-escalated. She was giving Eric Parnell tasks, like getting Jennifer a glass of water or clothes, since she didn't have any on when he brought her inside. As Eric was leaving the room, Stephanie told Jennifer, I'm going to ask you yes or no questions, but let me know when he's gone so I know when you can speak freely. And as soon as Eric left the room, Jennifer asked if her cousin was dead, because she was still holding on to any shred of hope that she hadn't actually seen what had happened out there. Stephanie didn't answer her question, and she told her, you can't do this right now, you have to be strong for you and your son. She said Jennifer had been doing really good, and she just had to keep that going for now. And as soon as Eric came back in the room with clothes for Jennifer, she told Eric to describe to the dispatcher how to get there one more time because they were having trouble finding it. And right on cue, Stephanie played right along to what Jennifer had said because she couldn't say, oh, he's back in the room, I can't speak freely anymore. So she just said, oh, just describe it one more time for the, for the dispatcher. And he just, she handed off the phone and Stephanie played right along, which was great. By that time, it had been an hour since Jennifer had been shot, and she was fighting a constant battle to stay conscious and find a way to escape. Even with 911 on the line, every second was filled with terror, because there was no telling if Eric Parnell would switch back into a homicidal rage. Finally, she hears sirens off in the distance, and they see an ambulance pull up outside. But this is where another problem arises for Jennifer, because with no police on the scene yet, the Lufkin EMS had a policy where they had to stay back and station where it was safe until police arrived. But what the EMS didn't realize was they had staged their safe spot in the line of sight of the front door. So seeing these EMS responders not approaching the home Eric became very paranoid that this was a setup, and he started freaking out. He began yelling at Jennifer, what did you tell them? But she said, you heard every word I said, I didn't tell them anything. But his anxiety and nerves only worsened as the minutes passed. Eric went outside to the ambulance to speak with them, and Jennifer stayed in the house on the phone with Stephanie Davidson. 
and when he came back to the mobile home, he began yelling that the EMS responders told him that they wouldn't come inside until the police got there. And he began screaming at Jennifer about what did she do, and he grabbed the phone out of her hand to talk to Stephanie. And Stephanie told him that she had no idea why these EMS responders were doing that. She had promised him multiple times that the police were not coming, and that she was only sending medical help for Jennifer. Stephanie knew all she had was her word, and if he didn't believe her, she would lose him, and possibly Jennifer. He told her once again he did not want police, because he was covered head to toe in Jennifer's blood, and he had done nothing but help her. Stephanie reassured Eric that he had done nothing but help Jennifer, and he was doing a real good job, and she said it with her nice southern drawl. And thankfully, he believed her once again. He believed her tone of voice and that sweet southern drawl. The SWAT team at that point was mobilized to rescue Jennifer, but they had dealt with Eric Parnell before, and if it went down the same way this time, Jennifer may not make it. She may not have two hours to wait for a standoff between Eric Parnell and the SWAT team with the amount of blood that she had already lost. In the past, Parnell had threatened his girlfriend with a rifle. On another occasion, he had struck her in the nose with an object, and he had pushed his girlfriend's child down, which had hurt his head significantly. And those were victims who had personal relationships with Parnell. However, in this instance, Jennifer had no connection with him. So that was a very huge concern for them going in. Because if he could do that to people who had personal connections to him, there was no saying what he was capable of for someone who had no connection to him. So the SWAT team decided their best course of action was to take him by surprise. If he saw them, it was all over, so they needed to lure them out of the house. After hearing that the SWAT team was in place, Stephanie asked Jennifer, who was holding the phone, are you strong enough to walk or possibly run to the ambulance? Without saying anything to Stephanie, Jennifer turned to Eric and said, I'm going to walk out to the ambulance. So Stephanie radioed to the ambulance and said, she's on her way out. When she gets to you, lock the door. Suspect is close. But as they walk out of the front door, the SWAT team hears a woman's voice say something to the effect of, we're coming out, don't hurt us, he's my friend. They saw that Jennifer was leading, but Eric Parnell was following very closely behind her which led them to believe that he had a gun pointed at her. Even surrounded by police and an ambulance, Jennifer was terrified that at any moment Eric would remember what he had done and he would kill her and himself. But the further she walked, she could see the ambulance at the end of the hill, which is when she just ran for it. And because she did that, the SWAT team was able to see a space between the two of them. And that's when they saw that Eric didn't have a gun to her. And the police immediately swarmed him and arrested him on the spot. Jennifer was then taken into the ambulance and rushed to the hospital. Stephanie, hearing that Jennifer had made it into the ambulance, was disconnected from the call and needed to step out for a few minutes. Knowing that she was okay and in the ambulance was all that she could do. She had done her part. All she could do now was hope that Jennifer would pull through. And oh my god, I do not blame her for needing to step out for a few minutes. I mean, that must have been one of, if not the most, 
stressful call Stephanie Davidson ever had in her entire career. I mean, I don't know how 911 operators do it. I know that not every call is like this, but clearly this is their job. Like, this is what they deal with. And then they they have to hang up. Once, once the person gets in the ambulance or gets in the police car, they have to just hang up. And then they don't know what happens. If you're a 911 operator, please write in and let me know what that's like. Because, oh my god, thank you for your service. But anyway, Jennifer was rushed into surgery, and Eric Parnell was taken into custody. During questioning, he stuck to the story that he was a good Samaritan who came to Jennifer's aid after she had been shot. Police had obtained multiple pieces of evidence against Eric Parnell, including the security camera footage of him at the gas station, and then him following Jennifer and Anna out of the parking lot. His shotgun was found at the scene. I'm sure they had his fingerprints on Anna's cell phone. They had his extensive violent history with women. And of course, Jennifer Holliday was his surviving victim. So they had a laundry list of evidence against him. But even still, he maintained his innocence. And he was called a sociopath by the people around him because of the things that he did. He had no remorse. He didn't hesitate one bit. He was just pure evil. I don't know that anyone would argue. I certainly wouldn't argue with that assessment. I, I'm i no doctor, but hell, that sounds right to me. I don't know. According to the officers that dealt with him, Eric Parnell was a time bomb just waiting to go off. Days before his trial, he changed his plea from innocent to guilty in order to avoid the death penalty. He was convicted of aggravated sexual assault and capital murder and received two consecutive life sentences. So he's gone. He's good and gone. In the months and years that followed the crime, Jennifer struggled to heal. The physical and emotional damage was huge. She had to go through eight surgeries and still has over 30 pellets in her left arm, chest, and neck from the shotgun. But through the challenges, she said that she had two sons and she had to keep going for them. For years, she struggled with PTSD and had really terrible nightmares, specifically about being in Eric Parnell's trailer. And that went on for years. She felt like she would never be able to face that place again until one day she was approached by some reporter who wanted to tell her story and asked her to revisit the trailer. And for whatever reason, she decided to do it. And when she got to where the trailer once was, she said she saw a huge trampoline with a bunch of kids on it, and they were jumping on it and laughing and having the best time. And when she went home after that and went to bed that night, she woke up at 2 a.m., but instead of waking up from a nightmare of the trailer, she had dreamt of the children on the trampoline laughing. And so when she woke up, she jumped up out of her bed and she began laughing herself. And she said since then, she hasn't had another nightmare about that place. And I think that's just beautiful that she was able to overcome that fear and replace that trauma with something so beautiful and joyous as children jumping on a trampoline. And and now that's what she dreams of when she thinks of that place. She says she has a deep faith and she appreciates her children, she appreciates their health, she appreciates her life, and she says that she just appreciates everything so much more now, because she was given a second chance at life. And I think that's really beautiful. But that is the story of the unbelievable survival of Jennifer Holliday.
Oof, gosh. It's stories like this that just make me so mad that people like that even exist, you know? That someone so evil is just out there doing such awful, scary, senseless, and it's just like with no real reason. It's just unlucky. But he's where he should be, and quite frankly, I hope he rots. But to not end on such a down note, I think there's something really incredible about the way that Jennifer handled the situation. I mean, she was put in an impossible situation, but she thought so quickly on her feet and she took full control of the situation as soon as she could. I mean, she had no control over the situation for so long, but as soon as there was even a sliver of an opening, she immediately took it and took it in such a big way and just went all in on that. And even though she was terrified that that wasn't going to work the entire time, she just completely committed to it and really stuck to it and it and it worked and and it saved her life and even though it sounded insane to say oh you saved my life to the person who shot and killed your loved one and terrorized you for so long she did it and it worked and that's that's incredible and in some weird messed up way she was almost uniquely qualified to survive this nightmare first of all she was an emt which gave her medical knowledge which i'm sure helped her when she was tending to her massive wound. And her training also probably helped when she had to switch up her story with Eric Parnell and get him to take her back to his house. Because she said when they did finally get back to his house, she was almost taking care of him and talking to him as if he were a child. So that must have been surreal. And of course, her childhood informed a lot of how she was responding to him. So she had all of these things that helped her along the way. And that's just incredible that she was able to use all of her past experiences to get through this horrific experience. I don't think just anyone would have been able to do that. I also really, really love that she was able to redefine Eric Parnell's trailer in her mind and turn it into the image of children playing. That is just so amazing to hear. And my heart absolutely goes out to Jennifer and her family and to Anna's family. I wish them all nothing but the best. But anyway, that is that on that. Let's have a bit of a palate cleanser. This was a very heavy episode. Um, and this paired with the Patreon episode that I dropped last week, it's been a bit of a heavy time. So maybe next week I'll strive for a bit of a lighter episode. Maybe I'll even see if I can convince Alex to be a part of it and we'll try to have a lighter episode. But anyway, what is my good thing? My good thing is that I am going to be spending some time with my friends in about an hour. We're getting some banana milkshakes and we're going to watch a, a movie musical, Sweeney Todd to be exact, which is good. It's a bit of a nostalgia. It's, it's nostalgic for me. So that's fun. And I think one of my friends hasn't seen it. So it'll be a fun experience for them. And who doesn't love a banana milkshake? So milkshake friends and movie musicals? I mean, name a better time. I don't know. I, I can't really think of much. But anyway... Thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram, nottoday underscore podcast. 
If you would like access to a bunch of bonus content and vote on the bonus episodes that come out, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival or a near-death experience that you would like to share with us and possibly hear on an upcoming listener's episode, send it to knowtodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah.